Well, good morning. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who uh, might be new. I know there are uh, a number of families here this morning, maybe dropping off kids at UAF, which begins this upcoming week. So I say to you, welcome. And uh, my name is Eric Johns. I'm privileged to serve as the senior pastor here. And uh, I want to say to you, I love this church. And this is a good church because it honors our Lord and it uh, pursues him vigilantly. So welcome uh, to those of you who may be new this morning. I have a series of uh, fun announcements to give to you before we get into the message. Uh, First of all, I want to let you know that next week we've set aside uh, some time in the service for you uh, to hear from one of our longstanding missionaries, Donna Smith, who is a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And I see Donna sitting over here. Donna, would you wave at everybody? Stand up, do it, maybe a twirl, no, I'm just kidding, (laughs) handspring, let's see what we could get you to do. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I know many of you have already had a chance to hear from Donna, if you were in a Sunday school class or many of your small groups have um, already had Donna in in your home and you've heard from her, um, I'm I'm hearing of a whole group of people ready to go with you to Papua New Guinea. Uh, There we go, you've been invited and, and you'll put us up, right? Yeah, all right. So there you go. You have your invitation. We're going to hear more from Donna next week. Uh, So I hope you're uh, looking forward to that. Also, the week following, uh, on the 13th of September, we're going to get to hear from our Czech Republic team. And uh, I hope you're looking forward to that. Uh, If you're on the Czech Republic team and you're sitting here right now, would you maybe stand up so we can see where you're at? See if we want to hear from any of you. Yeah, there they are. So next, uh, or the following week, on the 13th, we'll be hearing from them. And then, uh, I am pleased to announce as well, on September 20th, we have the arrival of a pastoral candidate for our worship pastor position. Yes. Uh, and so this is Josh and Julie Cavallo, and their twin 13-year-old girls, Amaryllis and Jubilee, their 10-year-old son, James, uh, and their 6-year-old daughter, Daisy. And they will be coming up, arriving on the 20th. Uh, They'll be in service with us, and the following week on the 27th, uh, Josh will be leading us in worship, and we'll have a chance to get to know them through the week. Uh, More information will be coming to you about them and about the events that will be unfolding, but we wanted to give you uh, weeks of notice that you can uh, kind of be holding that time aside, and so that you can be praying, even now, uh, for them and for us, that we would uh, sense the leading in the mind of God uh, in the decision before us. So we're excited to announce uh, their coming. Uh, that's very cool. Lastly, I also want to let you know a couple weeks in advance, on the 20th of September, uh, we're going to be taking an extra offering, a benevolence offering. Uh, this is a fund that we use uh, within the life of the church that as people, as uh, our own members, our own folks attending here, have needs that arise We as the body want to be able to respond to those needs, and it is the thing that Christian community does, as we've seen in Acts 2. And so we we have this fund so that we can reply to those needs quickly and efficiently to be helpful to folks. And um, we have uh, uh, drawn from it uh, quite a bit in the last, uh, I don't know, six or eight months, and we have a need to replenish. And so we want to come to you and let you know that uh, it's time to do that. That will be, again, Uh, September 20th, so you can uh, prepare for how the Lord might uh, lead you to contribute to that fund. Uh, And with that, with all of that good news, uh, man, I just feel like that was a whole sermon in and of itself right there. Let's all go home. No, not ready to do that. Let's let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to come before the Word of God and let it speak to us yet again. So let's pray. 
Lord, we are privileged to come because of Jesus before you and in your presence. We acknowledge that your presence is here and you are always with us. We don't have to invite you to come for you are ever present waiting for us to come to you. And you've made it possible for sinners to come boldly to you through the blood of Jesus and in his, and in his name. Uh, so we're grateful for that. And we ask now boldly, Lord, that you would help us to hear your word, that your Holy Spirit would drive it down into our hearts where it needs to be pressed, and that we would be humble and willing to obey and to live for you as followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'd open your bulletins, we're in our last week of this series, The Cost uh, of Community, and today's title is Praying Together. Um, the past four weeks, we've been talking a lot about community, and in particular, the cost of it. Uh, in other words, community is something that we all want, we all desire it. Uh, it's something easy to spot in the lives of other people. Uh, it's something you can maybe see across uh, the aisle of the church that, that others might be enjoying. It's easy to glimpse it even on Facebook and, and to recognize maybe when it's happening. But it can feel elusive to each of us at times or in certain seasons of our life. Um, and my goal throughout this particular series really has been twofold. Uh, number one, to hold up the high biblical value of Christian community, to hold it up for what it is, that it is something worth pursuing, it is worth wanting, uh, it is in fact something that we were meant for. It's not an accessory to the Christian life, it's the current of the Christian life in which we live. Uh, and so it's something worth having, worth wanting, worth pursuing. And secondly, it is something that makes demands of us. That is, it has costs. It doesn't come cheap, free, or easy. Uh, it is something that we will have to, in a sense, pay for. We will have to make commitments and certain devotions in order that it would occur uh, in our lives. And so we've been looking at especially the example of the early church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. If you would turn there right now, that will, that's where we're going to start and then we're going to move on to Acts chapter 4. But we've been looking at the example of the early church in Jerusalem really as our guide and as our uh, inspiration here, so to speak. We see the rich community that this early church enjoyed, even this mega church that 3,000 people were added to their number uh, in, at once, and then daily people were added to their number, those that were being saved. A large church in a metropolitan area, and they enjoyed maybe what is some of the richest community uh, shown to us in the scriptures. Uh, but we see that it didn't come easy for them. There were certain things that they had to devote themselves to. There were costs. They had to pay in to enjoy this community. And we've been looking at these, these things. First of all, we saw that they devoted themselves. This is in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're privileged to have the apostles' teaching bound for us in the scriptures, in the inspired word of God. We are able to go to them and see clearly what the apostles taught the early church. And this is not just a perfunctory exercise or a legalistic activity that we check off the list, but we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching so that Christ may be formed in us. 
that we might understand who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus and that we might obey him and truly follow him. And the effect is that creates in us a community that is headed the same direction. We're following Jesus together. We also see that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That is, there is a mutual belonging to one another. They lived interdependent lives. They deferred to one another. They relied upon one another's spiritual gifts that God had given. It is telling that God did not give every spiritual gift to every person, but to disperse them as he saw fit, such that we might have to rely upon one another for the, uh, sort of the full spectrum of the gifts that he has given. And so they devoted themselves to the fellowship, this mutual belonging and this commitment to continue meeting together with frequency. In fact, we find that they met together every day in the temple courts. And so if we want to enjoy the kind of community that we see on the pages of Scripture here, we should think about the fact that if, if I'm only willing to come to church once or twice a month, and then only on Sundays, I'm really going to miss out on something that they enjoyed. I can't have that expectation if I'm not willing to pay that level of devotion. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and we talked about this under sort of the label of hospitality. They cared for one another. They shared their things. They shared their food. They spent time eating together. Uh, They shared their stuff. They even sold their stuff so that they could provide care, that they could live with a margin, not for themselves, but for those who had need. Um, And then finally, we see that they devoted themselves to prayer, to prayer. And this morning, the prayer is the last one that we're really looking at, these areas of devotion that we've been focusing on. And as I've been thinking about prayer this week and how it contributed to the formation of community among them, I come to this conclusion, and it's kind of my driving point this morning, and that's this. That quite simply, praying together is one of those things which unites us in a posture under God. It unites us in a posture as those who live life under God. And I'm going to try to flesh that out a little bit this morning. Uh, One of the authors I've been reading a little bit on this topic is Mark Dever. He's a pastor back in Washington, D.C. And he said something really provocative in one of his books that I'm going to paraphrase. But the title of the book is Compelling Community. But he made the statement that community actually is really easy to achieve. Really easy. It's not hard at all. Uh, All you have to do is get a bunch of people together who um, are very similar and have the same values uh, and just just put them together. It's, you know, sort of the e-harmony approach uh, of community. Uh, And that for this kind of community, we don't even need the gospel or God at all. We can quite simply just put together people of likeness, Uh, just just pre-existing likeness. But Christian community is exceptional. Because we are united in spite of our great diversity of people and backgrounds and passions. We're united in spite of that. In other words, in Christian community, we're not just looking for this homogenous gathering. But through Christ, the most diverse of gatherings can be united in rich community because we are under God together. We are for Christ together. The gospel changes us and makes this kind of life possible. And prayer is formative in this. It is a uniting posture of coming under God. In other words, Christian community is not just the easy result of people who are already similar. 
It is a supernatural feat accomplished by God among people who are really diverse. We become children of God. We become knit together as family. And a devotion to prayer contributes to this dynamic. When we choose to pray, whether individually or collectively, we are choosing against self-reliance. When we choose to pray, we are choosing to remember the Lord's purposes and to realign ourselves with that. And when we pray, we are choosing to humble ourselves before the Lord and to acknowledge who he is. And so that act of prayer is critical to forming Christian community. Uh, What I want to do this morning, as we've seen that uh, this early church devoted themselves to prayer, we get a glimpse in chapter 4. And so if you turn over in your Bibles to chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 23, we actually get a glimpse of not just that they prayed or even how they prayed, but we actually get a glimpse of what they prayed. And so let me give you a little context for this first. Our passage really picks up, first of all, after Peter and John have been arrested for preaching about Jesus. Uh, Peter had healed a crippled man, a man who had been crippled from birth, the Bible says. And, uh, of course, an astonished crowd gathers around and wants to uh, check this out. And it creates a bit of a ruckus. And so the priests and the temple guard basically arrest him and they hold them uh, overnight. In the morning, they're questioned in front of the Sanhedrin. And they ask him the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? And uh, Peter, ever the diplomat, uh, right, uh, begins to uh, preach the gospel to his uh, interrogators. Uh, And this is what he uh, said to them. This is actually um, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which men must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that. They were astonished and they took note. These men had been with Jesus. Uh, And after this, the officials basically let them go. Uh, They ordered them not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus, an order which the disciples happily disobeyed. And if we're ever given such an order, so should we. And, and this, from this point on, what we get to see is that these disciples, that, that Peter and John, return to the community. They return to the other disciples, and they take this before the Lord in prayer. And we get to see how they prayed, and it's, it's informative for us. Look at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests And the elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and spoke the word of God boldly. And again, what I want to look at today is not just that they prayed, or even what they prayed, but how they prayed. And the first thing that comes out to me is this, that they, in the beginning of their prayer, they affirmed the nature of God. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And, and specifically what they affirm here is they affirm his creative power. In other words, their prayers are front-loaded with affirmations about the nature and the character of God, specifically his creative power. Uh, in a sense, what they're doing is they're reminding themselves of just who it is that they are approaching, whose presence they are coming before, who it is that they're making requests of. They're reminding themselves that they are coming before Almighty God, who has made all things. And we see regularly throughout the scriptures this kind of activity in the prayers, that the saints will remind themselves of who it is they're praying to. And I think for us, this is a significant lesson in the school of prayer. Uh, The implication for us is this. I think we have a tendency to go too quickly to the asking, and we spend too little time in the affirming. I think if we were to spend more time recalling and reaffirming to ourselves the power and the sovereignty of God, that we would ask more accurately and more confidently for the kinds of things that God is already inclined to do. I think quite simply that we would pray better. Uh, In a sense, we would be praying with the grain, uh, if I could use that as a picture illustration for you. In fact, I know that a picture is worth a thousand words, maybe more than my thousand words, but uh, I'm bringing an illustration for you that I can show you this morning. It's cold yesterday to me. I was a little chilled in my house. Anybody else feel it at home? Just a little bit. We have this thing in our house. We try to hold off starting a fire in the wood stove until October 1. It's like this goal. We just bundle up and hunker down and try to go as long as we can. It's like this little contest. I caved yesterday. (laughs) And I built the first fire uh, to take the chill off. And Amy just about booed me. Um, I don't know why I'm taking the sheath off. I don't intend to use this. But this is... um, you're all attentive now, right? <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> this, this is a hatchet which was given to me, and I've told you already about my love affair with this little hatchet. I love this thing. And uh, when I am, I'm going to put this sheath back on because this thing's wicked sharp. Um, when I am preparing for uh, fire, uh, I use a bundle of, of leftover um, what is it called? Newspaper. It's been so long since I've said that. (laughs) Newspaper uh, from the Daily News Miner, and they sell their extra bundles for like 50 cents. And so I have a bundle of newspaper, and then I take, I scrounge through the summertime end cuts um, of just regular dimensional two by four or two by six wood. And I take these end cuts, and and I take my, my hatchet here, and you know, the thing is about these end cuts, they're kiln dried, you know, they're just great for starting fires. And I take my hatchet, and all I have to do is, I don't have to like whack through this piece of wood. All I have to do is just set the tip in the wood. And then I can take this piece of wood and take the whole thing and drop it all together on my splitting block. And very easily and very neatly, 
a little chunk of wood breaks off along the grain. And I'll do it again and again and working my way through the piece. And then I'll take up those pieces that have been broken off and I'll, I'll do it again and I'll set it in there and tap it down again until I get this collection, this beautiful collection of little bouquet of splintered wood that's dry and thin and ready to burst into flame. And that's how I do that. And for me, that's a good picture of how we ought to pray. When we know our God, when we know his nature, when we know his character, and when we take time in our prayers to reaffirm these things to ourselves, when we go to prayer, we go neatly and easily and precisely to set our prayer in the grain and to just tap it down. And we find a God who is responsive and inclined to answer our prayers because we have prayed in line with who he is. And so my advice to you this morning is not so much to pray more, though that's probably not a bad thing, um, but quite simply to pray better. Know your God and you'll pray better. And when you pray better, I suspect you'll pray more. Um, But I want to remind you, pray with the grain. Pray along the lines that God is already inclined to act. Additionally, we see in their prayers, not only did they affirm the creative power of God and sort of who he is, but they also affirmed his sovereign control. Um, Sovereignty could be defined as uh, the controlled power of God. The controlled power of God. In other words, God is not just randomly powerful, right? Lightning is randomly powerful, and we've seen that this summer. Uh, Fires, forest fires are randomly powerful. Uh, (laughs) Two-year-olds are randomly powerful and incredibly destructive. Um, But God controls his power to his desired ends. And nobody and nothing can thwart the plans of God. Uh, This is affirmed for us all over the pages of Scripture. There's a passage in Isaiah uh, 14, 27. It says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand stretched out, and who can turn it back? So when the believers are crying out here to the sovereign God, they are acknowledging not only all of the power that he has, but the controlled exercise of his power. And so in their corporate prayer, the believers are placing two things at the forefront of their mind, the vast power of God and the controlled use of that power to his desired ends. And they're using that to inform their prayers. And so I want you to consider, Christian, how this might change the way that you approach God in prayer. If you spent time affirming these things before you got on with the asking, what would you find? Uh, I would think that we would find ourselves humbled. That we are coming into the presence of Almighty God, the maker of all things, and the one for whom all things exist. Uh, It's too easy for us to think that God is an accessory to our lives, something that exists for us to make life a little better. But in fact, we exist for God. We're here for him, and this whole world is here for him. He is the central being of the universe. We are not. Uh, 
I think when we approach our prayers this way, it would humble us to that reality. Uh, I think it would change our prayers a bit. Uh, I think there are certain prayers that we might be quick to offer um, that are somewhat trite and self-centered, and I think they would just fall by the wayside. Uh, And I don't mean to say by that that God doesn't care about the little things, because he absolutely cares about the little things. He tells us in his word that a sparrow can't fall to the ground without his knowing it. Uh, Or in Alaska translation, a chickadee. (laughs) The black-capped chickadee couldn't fall to the ground without him knowing it. Um, The small things matter to God. But those petty, self-centered issues, I think those things would fall easily either down or off our prayer lists when we come in the presence of the sovereign creator. Um, Also, I think we would find ourselves more knowledgeable. Um, That is, we would pray with precision. We would pray along the lines that God is already inclined to ask. And I think because of that, we would find more effective prayers more effective prayers. Uh, Secondly, in their prayers, we recognize that they acknowledge not only who God was and his nature, but they acknowledge what God has done. Look at verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We looked at this, didn't we, when we went through the Psalms, if you remember. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, and I think they prayed this with a smile on their face. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And so here we have the disciples reminding themselves really of the big picture redemptive plan of God and how that intersects with this particular moment in their lives where they too are feeling persecution and opposition as they're trying to do God's work. And what they acknowledge here is they acknowledge that this plan, they acknowledge God's plan of salvation. And we see clearly here that our rescue in Jesus Christ was no divine afterthought. It wasn't God cleaning up a mess he hadn't anticipated. We find it prophetically referenced on the lips of David a thousand years prior. We see that this opposition that sprung up against Jesus was in fact no threat at all. It was just the means by which God was accomplishing his redemptive work. And David had acknowledged that years prior. We also learn that the enemies of Christ and the persecutors of Christians are actually unwitting accomplices in the redemptive plan of God. And I think for us, we should be careful not to wish away every act of opposition or every stroke of persecution because throughout history, we actually see that what people intended for evil, God uses for good. His redemptive plan never thwarted, never really challenged, never ever in jeopardy, but always unfolding as God had planned. We see this in the life of Joseph, right? The dreamer who annoyed his brothers such that they were ready to kill him and then thought, eh, if we're gonna get rid of this guy, let's profit by it. And so they sell him into slavery where he's taken to Egypt only to be put into a position of influence to be prepared for God's people. We also see this same kind of thing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He was opposed, ridiculed, beaten, and ultimately killed. 
but even the enemies of God were our unwitting accomplices to his redemptive plans. And the early disciples, as they remind themselves about these things, are ready to accept that, that same possibility in their own lives. And, it, and I, I think as we look at this, I think it, it ought to hit us right between the eyes and hit us in the face. We can see that God is after something much bigger than just an easy, affluent life in the American suburbs for us, which is so often really the end target of our prayers. He is building his kingdom. He is reconciling a people of sinners to himself, a holy God. And suffering and persecution are tools in his bag to achieve those ends. And so he performed our salvation through Christ's suffering. And so this kind of praying, as the disciples had done here, the early church, this kind of praying, acknowledging who God is and reminding ourselves of what he has done, helps to form and to frame our prayers. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, this is my year of C.S. Lewis. I've talked to you guys about that. I'm trying to grow up and read what he's written and not just be picky about it. Uh, It's hard for me. Uh, But C.S. Lewis is well noted for having said that prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Maybe you've heard that before. And I think I mostly agree with C.S. Lewis here. Uh, It is true that our God does not change. His nature does not change. His purposes do not change. Uh, It's also true that when we pray, we certainly do change. Um, But I think where Lewis might miss the point a little bit is this, that throughout the scriptures, what we find is that the prayers of God's people affect and influence the action of God in a way that I can't fully explain. Um, I know that he asks us to pray. Uh, We're told that he hears our prayers. We're told that by his spirit, he helps our prayers. Uh, And we're also told that our prayers, in some way, move his hand. Um, And how the mechanics of all that work together, I don't fully understand. If I did, I'd write a book. I'd be on a traveling circuit, making a lot of money explaining that to everybody. Um, But I don't know how that works. But what we see here is that the believers have acknowledged who God is. They've reminded themselves of what he has done. And now, now, they get to the asking. And see how the front-loaded aspects of these prayers change their petitions. In verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Did you hear that? Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They asked for boldness to speak his word. This is amazing to me if you think about the whole context here. Notice what they did not request. They did not request the removal of this persecution or the opposition that they were facing or the threat. They merely asked what? That God would consider it. I see that and I notice how open-handed they were with their prayers. They don't know what God may be intending. They do know how God has used persecution in the past. And they open-handedly say, consider it, Lord. Consider this. And what they do pray boldly for 
is that they would be empowered and enabled to speak the word with boldness. If I can say it again, they prayed with the grain. When they informed their prayers with the nature and the activity of God, they prayed with the grain. Um, I'll illustrate this another way. Some of you are story-driven. So growing up, uh, I had a good relationship with my parents. I've shared that with you guys many times. I want to honor them for that. They were were godly uh, mom and dad for me. Um, uh, My dad and I had very different interests. And I can remember if I would go to my dad and say, hey, dad, let's let's go play catch or hey, dad, let's go shoot hoops, or let's go play some tennis, or something like that. You know, maybe he would be inclined to, and maybe not. It certainly probably wasn't his first desire. I had much more interests in sports than he did. Um, And so sometimes, you know, that was sort of a 50-50 deal. Um, But I did know that my dad had uh, a couple of soft spots. And I knew his soft spots, uh, just as you knew your parents' soft spots. I knew there was a, a soft place in his heart for puppies and bicycles. Well, you know, whose isn't, right? Puppies and bicycles. And I knew that if I had a need or a desire for either one of those, uh, that I, if I came to my dad and talked to him about that, he was already inclined. Like, he was already there. It was an easy ask. It was an easy request. In other words, knowing my father, I knew how to ask. The same is true for prayer. When we know our Father and we know the soft spots of his heart, we know how to ask. Um, And as you can see, these disciples teach us their goal was not just comfort, but it was the expansion of God's kingdom. And that's how they prayed. Um, We also find that they were They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled here means that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit who was already within them. In other words, God empowered them to act as they had rightly asked. Uh, When we see this phrase that one was filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not that they get more of the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit gets more of them. Okay. In other words, we have lots of junk in our lives in which we displace, I think, the Holy Spirit's working and power within us. But when we, like the disciples, come before the Lord and lay all of that out and say, Lord, you have all of me. Right? When we come in prayer open-handed and say, consider this, then I think it's very likely that we posture ourselves such that we could be filled with the Holy Spirit because we are giving him more of us. He is already all here for us. We just need to give him all of us. And that's what happened here. Additionally, their, their request for miracles and wonders uh, was asked in the name of Jesus, which I would remind you is not just this magical tag that we tap onto the end of our prayers, like putting a priority mail sticker on something so it gets to its destination. But I think praying in the name of Jesus actually has two implications for us who should be praying it. First of all, it's a qualifier of our prayer. In other words, it's the way of saying that what we are praying for, we are requesting not just for our own sake, but in the name of Jesus, for the glory of his name and in the power of his name. Uh, And uh, it's a way of asking for his glory and for his honor. It qualifies our prayers according to that, that line. And I think secondly what it is, is it's a way to pray rightly 
In other words, and I may be introducing a new concept for you here to get you thinking, I guess, but the way we are instructed to pray through the scriptures is to the Father, through Jesus Christ, in his name. He's the one who makes it possible, helped along by the Holy Spirit. That is the shape of prayer. To the Father, through or in the name of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so praying that in the name of Jesus, again, it's not just this tag that we add on to the end of our prayer. It's a way that we calibrate our prayer in the way that we ought to pray. It's a way of submitting and qualifying our requests. In fact, I recently read um, uh, in a book uh, that I was reading about the Trinity that it suggested that maybe the best way to pray is actually to start with in the name of Jesus rather than to end with that we would remind ourselves that everything that's about to happen is because Jesus makes it possible and everything we're about to say is ultimately to that end rather than as an afterthought. It was interesting to me. But the result that we find here is that the disciples prayed a prayer that God was pleased to answer. And he did, and they spoke the word of God boldly. They spoke the word of God boldly. In addition to this, the beginning of verse 32 is where I'm going to end this morning. We're given this remarkable line. Don't miss this. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Let that sink in a little bit. All the believers, new believers, big city, a lot of people, just figuring this thing out. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And I would submit to you that the signs and the wonders and the healing and the shaking of the place that they were in were the smaller of the two miracles. The greater one is that all of the believers were united in heart and mind. If you've been a part of the church, any church, for any length of time, you know that to be absolutely a miracle of God. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And so I want to end on this. We want community. We, we see this picture of it and we say, yeah, I want a piece of that. But Christian, it has costs. It has demands of your life. These believers didn't get it cheap, fast, and easy. They got it because they devoted themselves to some things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread or hospitality. And they devoted themselves to prayer. They came together before and under the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there's a a scary thing. We're we're pretty frequently scared of not getting what we want. Sometimes it's a scary thing, too, to get what we want. And so, Lord, if there's people here this morning, along with me, who are saying, I want community, I want Christian community, Make us aware, Lord, of what it will cost us. In the name of Jesus, we're able to approach you, Father, because he has made a way. Forgiven our sins and taken his place at your right hand as our advocate. And we know that we are aided in our prayers by the Holy Spirit, and we rejoice in that. God, I pray that we would learn from the school of prayer in front of us. Uh, We would learn, Lord, how to incline our hearts to you to recall to ourselves who you are and how you've worked 
and what you're after. Father, may we be a church and a community that together comes before you and under you. May the Christian community that we enjoy here not be a result of likeness, but a supernatural result of an almighty God who is making us like his son, despite our diversity. Lord, help us to do what we need to do, to lean in to the kinds of devotions that will help us experience Christian community. For your name, for your glory and honor, and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.